All right, I guess we should get into Daniel chapter 11. All right, we're going to just jump right into this. Verses 18 through 45 of Daniel 11. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are in control, that you are in charge. You are large and in charge. But Lord, we thank you that you have called us and enabled us to be one of those remnant churches. Lord, that we've not been led astray by false doctrine, false teaching, that you've given us the strength and the courage to stand firm on the truth of your word. And we ask that you would just cause your Holy Spirit to once again today teach us, feed us, lead us, instruct us, Father, as we study this passage together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A gentleman by the name of David Trabig had an article on this Daniel chapter 11, and he referred to this Daniel chapter 11, and I've been emphasizing this past couple of weeks, but I thought it was interesting that he made the same observation. He calls it the most detailed prophecy in the Bible, Daniel chapter 11. And we've talked about that, even though some of it may be a little dry, I don't know, it's, it's, it's historical in nature, it's almost like a history lesson. But it just, it magnifies and amplifies how absolutely amazingly specific and accurate the Bible's prophecies are, unlike any other book in the world. And so he says the prophecy of Daniel 11 includes amazing details about great empires, political developments, and end-time powers that would affect the Jews and all people today. So before we get into the, the meat here, beginning in verse, um, we're going to begin in verse 20. For some reason, my notes say verse 18, but we actually start in verse 20. I want to give you some little talking points, some recap here of what's been going on in world history during this chapter that Daniel is covering here. So first of all, after Alexander the Great died at the age of 32... Again, Ed talking about we don't wish harm to anyone, but it's interesting to watch how sometimes people who promote and promulgate evil do wind up uh, paying for it, and sometimes their lives are cut short. God promises long life to those who, uh, length of days and long life, and all these things will be added to those who keep his commandments. But Alexander died at 32. His empire, as you may recall, was divided among four of his generals, Cassander, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Seleucus. It was called the diatoche. If it sounds familiar, it's a similar Greek word to the word from, from which we get the word deacons, the diaconate of the church, the servants, the diatoche. They were the four generals under Alexander that became his successors. And these generals spent 40 years fighting among themselves, not surprisingly, before three, three main dynasties emerged, the Antigonids of Asia Minor, obviously under Antigonus, and Greece, which was a region referred to at the time as Macedon, Macedonia, the Ptolemies in Egypt, which included Cleopatra. Remember we talked about her ancestor Cleopatra, I think the week before last, because I wasn't here last week, and she was the final ruler that came from this Ptolemy dynasty. And then the Seleucids who occupied 
a stretch of land that extended from present-day Syria and Lebanon into Persia. Seleucus, one of, the, of these generals who became ruler of Babylon in 312 B.C., gradually reconquered most of Iran. Interesting, here we are in the last days, and that same region is right in the focal point of what's happening in the world today. But under Seleucus' son Antiochus I, the ancestor of Antiochus Epiphanes that we're going to talk about today, Antiochus I, many Greeks uh, entered Iran and these Hellenistic motifs, that's what they call uh, the culture related to the Greeks. It was the Hellenistic culture. And so you have these motifs in art, architecture, and urban planning that became prevalent in that area during his rule and his reign. The Egyptian portion of Alexander's kingdom was ultimately claimed by Ptolemy I, a Macedonian general and friend of Alexander since his early days. So they were all Greeks, but as they split up the empire of Alexander, they, they brought that Greek culture into these various areas. Here he served with Alexander from his first campaigns and was the first ruler of the Ptolemy dynasty in Egypt. It took almost two generations of war for the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and the Antigonid kings of Macedon to achieve a sustainable political and military balance. The Ptolemies, the Macedonian Greek dynasty founded by Ptolemy I, was arguably the most successful of the post-Alexander kingdoms. It ruled Egypt for more than 300 years. There were 15 Ptolemaic leaders, and they ruled from 332 B.C. to 30 B.C., so we're getting very close now to the time when Christ would come on the scene, the time of Herod the Great and so forth, just rolling right up to that. They ruled from Alexandria and Egypt. And as I mentioned, Cleopatra was the last of the Ptolemies. When she died in 30 B.C., Romans took over territory formerly controlled by the Ptolemies, and as you know, they also took over Israel. So that's just a little background this is the stuff we've been covering just to kind of try to bring it into focus. Very significant time in world history. And uh, we pick it up in verse 20. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. Now, Antiochus III, his son Seleucus IV Philopater, <laughs> 187 to 176 B.C., heavily taxed his people of his realm, including the glorious kingdom, which is Israel, to pay Rome. They were, they were um, even though they were their own kingdom, so to speak, they were actually under the thumb of Rome and had to pay tribute to Rome. So they heavily taxed the people of that whole region, Syria, Persia, Lebanon, and Israel, and he was poisoned. It says here, he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. He was poisoned by his treasurer, Heliodorus. But apparently Heliodorus wasn't mad when he did it. Because <laughs> it says it wasn't in anger or in battle. So it was a very calculated, calm assassination. <laughs> So that brings us up because Antiochus III was assassinated. Now we have coming onto the scene the guy who is really considered the Old Testament Antichrist. He is a type of the Antichrist. 
and ties in very closely with the last days. So beginning here in verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person. How would you like to be identified throughout all eternity in the holy word of God as a vile person? <laughs> To whom they will not give the honor of royalty, but he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. See, the throne rightfully belonged to another guy named Demetrius Soter, who was the son of Seleucus IV Philopater. Don't you love these names? Glad they don't have names like that today. Although people have been inventing some pretty strange names. But Antiochus for Epiphanes seized the throne and had himself proclaimed king. Thus he did not come to the throne by rightful succession. He seized it through intrigue, as Daniel tells us here in verse 21. And this is really important because this is a major time in Israel's history, again, about 160 years before Christ. Verse 22, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. So this they that shall be swept away is believed to be a reference to the Egyptian army. Remember in the introduction I talked about how these different factions were at war for like 40 years trying to balance out the power and decide who was going to have what territory. And so Antiochus Epiphanes launched an attack on the Ptolemies of Egypt. And defeating them was actually the very thing that facilitated his rise to power. It says, and also the prince of the covenant. So Antiochus broke or destroyed the Egyptian army. It says to be, they were uh, swept away before him and broken. And also the prince of the covenant. So there was a guy named Onias III, Onias III. He was the high priest in Jerusalem at that time. And he was known by that title, prince of the covenant. And he was... Um, deposed by Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 23, after the league is made, or as the uh, one translation says, after coming to an agreement with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So after his military victories, his prestige, his power rose with the help of a comparatively small number of people. And he's also deceitful in his agreements. He's dishonest. After uh, coming to an agreement with him, he shall act deceitfully. Actually, this is pretty typical for world rulers and world leaders, isn't it? Unfortunately, they seem to be the common denominator rather than the exception. Verse 24, he shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers, he shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So it would appear that one of the ways that he uh, attempted to bring peace within his own kingdom, among his own people, which again would be various ethnicities, because we're talking Persia, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, that whole area, was by redistributing wealth, taking from the rich and giving to his followers. I thought it was Antiochus Epiphanes, not Biden. 
Oh, sorry. Um, it sounds like old Antiochus Epiphanes might have been the first communist. So he's trying to bribe people, buy them off by taking money from the rich and distributing among the, the people. And then verse 25, he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south, Ptolemy again, the Ptolemies of Egypt, with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. This king of the south, Ptolemy Philometer, 181 to 145 B.C., so after Antiochus had consolidated his kingdom, solidified it, the boundaries and so forth, and was appeasing the people by redistributing the wealth and so forth. Then he moved against Egypt, the king of the south, in 170. And he was able to move his army from his homeland in Syria to the border of Egypt before he was met by the Egyptian army at a place called Pelusium near the Nile Delta. It says, it shall be stirred up to battle or wage war with a very great and mighty army, but he will not stand the king of the south. So in this battle, the Egyptians had a large army, bigger than that of Antiochus Epiphanes, but they were defeated, and then Antiochus professed friendship with Egypt. But it says, they shall devise plans against him, the king of the south. Verse 26 Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. What this means is that the trusted counselors of Ptolemy Philometer, who ate at his table, betrayed him. Verse 27, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. So neither one of them were good guys. And they shall speak lies at the same table. Boy, things never change, do they? <laughs> and yet there are those who think we're moving onward and upward to a great earthly utopia. But it shall not prosper, for the end will be at the appointed time. And so the victor here, Antiochus, and the vanquished, Ptolemy Philometer, sat at a table together as though friendship had been established, but the goal of both to establish peace was never realized, for they were both being deceptive. Verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches, Antiochus, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. And so we begin to see these antichrist tendencies here because we find that in uh, the book of Revelation, halfway through the tribulation, the antichrist is going to unleash fury on the Jewish people. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he carried away great wealth back to his homeland from his conquest. And on his return, he's passing through Israel, part of his territory, and after his disappointment in Egypt, he'd hoped, why was he disappointed? Because he'd hoped to take all of Egypt, but he failed and had to do a fake peace treaty with Ptolemy. He wanted to take the whole place. So he took out his frustrations on the Jews by desecrating the temple in Jerusalem. And evidently, he opposed the entire Mosaic system. It says, his heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant, and so after desecrating the temple, 
he returned to his own country, Syria, Persia, right in there in that region. Verse 29, at the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south again, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. In other words, this would be his third incursion into the south down towards Egypt. And he would not enjoy. So two years later, in 168, he moved against Egypt again. But on this third attempt, he would not have the same success that he's had with his previous campaign. Verse 30, for ships, here's why. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So every time he gets bummed out, disappointed, upset because he's not having the uh, success that he'd hoped to have militarily, he takes it out on the Jewish people. He shall return to rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage, so he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. The King James Version uses the phrase, the ships of Kittim, K-I-T-T-I-M. This refers to Roman power that came from the west past Cyprus, or Kittim, to defeat Antiochus in Egypt. So the Romans were siding with and protecting the Ptolemies of Egypt. As he moved into Egypt, he was opposed by the Romans who'd come to Egypt in ships from the western coastlands, ships of Kittim, Cyprus. Popilius Leonis brought a letter from the Roman Senate forbidding him, Antiochus, to engage in war with Egypt. So remember I told you earlier that Antiochus had to pay tribute to Rome, and that's why he increased the taxes on his people. So when Antiochus asked for time to consider the emissary from Rome drew a circle in the sand around Antiochus and demanded that he give him his answer before he stepped out of the circle. Antiochus submitted to Rome's demands for to resist would be to declare war on Rome. This was a humiliating defeat for Antiochus Epiphanes. says he will lose heart, but he had no alternative but to return to his own land. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. As we saw in verse 28, he vents his anger on the inhabitants of Israel. But this next part is interesting. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Those Jews who would renounce their Judaism, and there were some who did, and pledge allegiance to Antiochus, they were rewarded. Now, this has been going back maybe 10 years ago or so. Quite a while ago, we were still having services in the other building. And I remember it was on a Thursday night service, midweek Bible study, that I had mentioned that I believe when the really serious persecution comes for believers in America in particular, it'll come from people within the church. Not from those outside, although that will happen as well, but I believe the first ones to turn on the remnant church will be those who are part of the Laodicea church, the lukewarm church, the fake church. And so there were those in Israel who took the deal. They were rewarded for renouncing their faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Verse 31, forces shall be mustered by him, Antiochus, and they, these forces, shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now this is where some people who buy into a different theology regarding prophecy, eschatology, the last days, will say that uh, we're off base. The preterists believe everything in prophecy has already been fulfilled. If that's the case, I'm disappointed. <laughs> but they say the abomination of desolation that's spoken of in Revelation already happened. This, um, again, Antiochus is considered the Old Testament Antichrist. He is a type of the final Antichrist that's coming. And his abomination of desolation was a forerunner of the ultimate desolation that happens in Revelation 13 when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple and demands to be worshipped as God. This one, although terrible, was just a, a lightweight precursor to what's coming. So in seeking to destroy Judaism and to Hellenize the Jews, remember bring, impose that Greek culture? He forbade the Jews to follow their religious practices, including their festivals and even circumcision, and commanded that copies of the law be burned. Burning the Bible. Then he set up the abomination that causes desolation. In this ultimate act of blasphemy on December 16th, 167 B.C., he erected an altar to Zeus on the altar of burnt offering outside the temple and had a pig offered on the altar. And you know that pigs aren't kosher. <laughs> so that was a, an ultimate act of uh, degradation, desecration, blasphemy. The Jews were forced to offer a pig on the 25th of each month to celebrate Antiochus Epiphanes' birthday. I don't know about you, I wouldn't exactly be excited about having a pig sacrificed on my birthday. But again, it was to demoralize and degrade the Jewish people. So it, not only did it happen on December 16th, 167, they were required to offer a pig on the 25th of each month. This is the abomination of desolation in the Old Testament, but again, it's a, it's a picture, a shadow, a foretelling, or a foretelling of what will take place in the tribulation, only this time the pig will be the Antichrist himself. <laughs> okay, verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So Antiochus promised apostate Jews, those who renounced their faith in order to receive rewards from him, he promised that they would receive great reward if they would set aside the God of Israel and worship Zeus, the God of Greece. And again, history tells us many in Israel were persuaded by his promises. The word here is flattery and worship the false god. I would say the Church of England, who is now endorsing same-sex marriages, would apply to this scenario. They've turned away from the true God. In fact, one of the new major religions on the planet seems to be 
LGBTQ and transgenderism. Anything that's illogical, irrational, not verifiable, but is embraced wholeheartedly like the LGBTQ movement, the transgender movement, you would have to categorize it as a religion. And by the way, what we practice is not religion. It's relationship with God, Amen. the God of all creation. Amen. And so again, many of those people in Israel were persuaded by Antiochus' promises, his flattery, and they worship the false god. But the people who know their god shall be strong and carry out great exploits. So again, interestingly, how I got this article on the remnant church, and what we have here in Israel at the time of Antiochus' rule is a small remnant, hello, that remained faithful to God, refusing to participate in those abominable practices and they carried out great exploits, which we'll get to in just a moment with the Maccabees. Verse 33, those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame by captivity and plundering. So we need to understand something. We haven't experienced this yet in our country, in our lifetime. Hopefully, perfectly, we won't. But when it talks about God's people being strong and carrying out great exploits, that is not a guarantee that we will not suffer. Some people get confused on that. Because these people who stood firm and did carried out great exploits, they also fell by the sword and by flame and by captivity and plundering. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. So those that were faithful to God there in Israel did their best to open the eyes of their fellow Israelites. Gee, I think that's our mission today, isn't it? We have that same mission today as the remnant church. To instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Antiochus sent his general Apollonius with 22,000 soldiers into Jerusalem on what was falsely proclaimed to be a peace mission but they attacked Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Not surprising, right? Because the Jews were not allowed to travel more than a quarter of a mile. They, they had to stay in a very stationary position, honoring God on the Sabbath. Killed many people, these soldiers of Antiochus and of Apollonius. They took many women and children as slaves, and they plundered and burned the city. Man, I've never taken the time to add it up, but the city of Jerusalem has been plundered and destroyed so many times throughout human history. Again, that roaring lion, Satan, seeking whom we may devour. Verse 34, Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. Now this section alludes to the rise here of the Maccabees, the Maccabean revolt. Matthias was a priest, and he was the father of five sons. One of them, Judas, you've probably heard of him, Judas Maccabeus. He became well-known for refurbishing and restoring the temple in late 164 B.C., three years after the abomination of desolation. He was called Judas Maccabeus. His nickname was the Hammerer. Sounds like a pretty hardcore guy. In 166, Matthias refused to submit to this false religious system, 
And he and his sons fled from Jerusalem to the mountains and began the Maccabean revolt. So it says, when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. The fall doesn't mean to fail. It means that, you know, in Ecclesiastes it says, two are better than one. If one falls, the other one can pick him up, lift him up. They shall be aided with a little help. At first, there were only a few Jews that joined into this revolt. But many shall join with them by intrigue. So as their movement became popular, many joined, but some of them out of sincere motives and some out of false motives. The NIV says many who are not sincere will join them. And so it was a mixed bag. Verse 35, and some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. So the suffering that the faithful endured, it served to refine and purify them. And that's one of the points that I always like to make when we talk about, some people ask this question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow his people to suffer? It's to build strength, endurance, perseverance to purify us like a refining fire if we as believers now there are some branches of the church where they teach this prosperity health wealth so forth that if you have enough faith nothing bad will ever happen to you you know you won't get sick you'll have lots of money yada 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 you know what god loves us too much to allow that because we would just be a bunch of spoiled brat christians and the minute the least little bit of trouble came along, we would fold like an umbrella. So God allows it for our own good. And so it was for their refining, for their purification. And the time of persecution in this instance was uh, of short duration. It had previously been real, revealed to Daniel that the temple would be desecrated for 1,150 days. Daniel 8:14. And Daniel 8, 23 through 25. So again, a specific reference to this time period between the abomination of desolation and the Maccabean revolt. Three years. And Daniel was assured by God that this persecution would run its course and then be lifted. For its end will come at the appointed time, it says. And interestingly enough, old Antiochus IV died insane in Persia in 163 B.C. I've told you before, sin will make you crazy. He died out of his mind. And as, as I've pointed out more than once as we go through this passage, this section of Daniel, one of the important aspects is you think, well, gosh, it was supposed to be about the end times, but everything so far has been about stuff that already happened. But the point is this, if Daniel, speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, a messenger from God bringing in this information, could be this spot on regarding historical events that have already transpired, don't you suspect that he could be just as accurate when it comes to the last days? Which we will get to in the last part of this chapter and on into chapter 12. So it just gives us that more, much more assurance and certainty that everything in God's word that hasn't happened yet is going to happen because everything that's already happened has been confirmed by the prophecies of Scripture. All the events described thus far in chapter 11 are past. 
The intricate details of the conflicts between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies were fully realized, literally, exactly as Daniel had predicted. And so detailed are the facts that skeptics, listen to this now, because of these details, skeptics have denied that the book was written by Daniel in the 6th century B.C. They believe that the book must have been written during the time of the Maccabees, 168 to 134 B.C., after the events took place. It's so accurate, they can't believe anybody could have predicted it. And so they try to deny that it was written by Daniel in the 6th century. But God knows the end from the beginning, and he was able to reveal these details of forthcoming history to Daniel, and I think that's pretty amazing. Let's stand. We're going to finish chapter 11 next week. We may get into part of 12. I'm not sure yet. So let's stand. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let's, we're going to kind of lower the lights here a little bit, and I want to see the hands of those who have a prayer request this morning. Quite a few. Father, you see every person, every hand. You know what's on each person's mind and each person's heart. And Lord, we're so thankful that you know us inside and out, that even the very hairs of our heads are numbered. And so, Lord, I want to, on behalf of each one that's raised their hand, lift them up to you now and ask that you would graciously, mercifully hear their prayers. Father, for some it has to do with health, physical issues, perhaps some type of injury like I just had recently, um, uh, a disease, some type of affliction. Lord, whether it's chronic or acute, none of it makes any difference to you. It's all the same to you, and none of it's a problem for you, Father. You are the great physician. So we lift up each and every health issue here this morning, each and every affliction, each and every injury, and we pray that you would lovingly, graciously, mercifully pour out your healing oil upon your people and bring healing to us, Father, so that we may serve you better. Lord, we ask not for these things just for our own benefit, but we ask so that we would have the strength, the energy, the ability, the longevity to be able to serve you and worship you and honor you here on planet Earth. As we talked about this morning, that we could instruct many, bring many to Christ before it's too late. So we pray for physical healing. We pray for mental and emotional healing, Lord, that there are some who have suffered Trauma, PTSD, uh, mental and emotional issues brought on by a variety of different things. Lord, some out of our control, perhaps some our own doing. But Lord, again, it matters not. We ask for your healing to be upon your people, to heal those broken hearts. Lord, you said you came to heal the brokenhearted. And I do believe, Father, that those with mental and emotional struggles would come under that category. So we ask again, Humbly, for your love, your grace, your mercy to be poured out upon those who are having those issues, that they might be made whole, body, soul, and spirit, again, to honor you here on this planet, to be a witness to those around them. We pray for encouragement, Father. We know that our prayers are not always answered in the time frame that we would like, but you have a perfect timing for everything. So we pray that in addition to healing physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that you would impart to us patience by your Holy Spirit. Lord, to be able to wait upon you. Lord, your word says those who wait upon you shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint.
So, Lord, give us the strength and the ability to wait upon you and to trust you. And, Lord, to thank you in advance, right up in front, for what you're going to do for us. Pray for those with relationship issues. Same thing, Lord. We need your healing touch in marriages and friendships, different relationships in our lives that require us to interact with people and to get along. Lord, we know the enemy comes but to steal, to kill, and destroy. We pray that you would come in like a flood, bring healing and restoration, and help us to be the instruments of your peace and your reconciliation and your restoration. And finally, Lord, for economic issues, you are our provider. Help us never to forget that, Lord. No matter who writes the paycheck, you're the provider. Help us to keep our eyes on you, to trust in you, to hope in you. And uh, we ask you just to meet the needs of your people, Lord. Obviously, not every want and desire we have, but you did promise to give us our daily bread, to provide those necessities of life. And we pray that you would continue to do that and that we would... Be thankful and grateful for every blessing. We praise you and thank you for your word. Lord, help us to continue to be part of that faithful remnant as we keep our eyes to the skies looking for your soon return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.